Hi, I'm Shannon, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN, and this week on the Lectures in History podcast, University of Montana history professor Lee Fredrickson discusses the 1909 labor protests in Missoula, Montana. These sparked a high-profile fight over free speech and police violence. Stay tuned. Class starts right after this. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, and before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to my colleague, Jen. Thanks, Rachel. Hi, I'm Jen, one of the producers here at C-SPAN. And if you enjoy lectures in history, we think you'll also like reading our weekly American History TV newsletter. If you're into history, you'll appreciate being an American History TV insider. Every week we deliver advanced program highlights so you never miss out on learning more about the people and events that document the American story. It's the place to find out which lectures in history, Civil War battle talks, features on the presidency, and interviews with historians are coming up. Plus, you'll get highlights of featured C-SPAN podcasts. Subscribe today at c-span.org connect for your weekly dose of history every Friday. Thanks for being part of our community. Don't forget to visit c-span.org connect to sign up. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Today, we're going to talk about the Missoula free speech fight. Um, So in the fall of 1909, this woman pictured here, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn uh, made her way to Missoula to organize laborers. She was very young, 19 years old, as old as some of you guys are, or maybe even a little bit younger than some of you are. Um, But she and several people were there to organize laborers, and uh, specifically uh, lumber workers in the Missoula area. But the outcome of her visit there was not just a battle over labor rights and working conditions, but ultimately a battle over free speech, the rights to free speech, the right to speak freely in public, to assemble in public without being harassed or arrested or jailed. So uh, in this lecture, we're gonna gonna get into the details of what actually happened in Missoula, but I also wanna start out a little more broadly and talk about the context of this period, what's leading up to this battle, uh, what's shaping it, And then in the aftermath, talk a little bit about what happened to some of these people that were involved in this free speech battle, what happened to some of the the questions around free speech, and a little bit more broadly, the significance of this uh, Missoula's free speech uh, battle. All right, so this is a period of intense, rapid, massive industrialization for the United States, this period from the late 19th to early 20th century. Uh, It's a period when you have the rise of these industrial giants, people like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and others. It's when the United States uh, goes from having some industry to being the world leader in industrial output, producing much more than other countries. It's a period when industrialization is uh, moving to uh, making things on a much larger scale, much bigger businesses, huge corporations, building things with new technology, developing uh, ways to produce things more efficiently and more cheaply. And this produces a lot of changes in the American society in this period. 
Um, there are, uh, it produces a great amount of wealth, produces a lot of different technologies, new technologies that benefit people. It raises standards of living, but it also produces some problems or some issues. Uh, there's a lot of poverty that remains despite a great deal of wealth in this period. There's a tremendous amount of inequality that comes out of this period. There are changes to working conditions, how long people need to work, what hours they work, uh, and a lot of more hazardous conditions under which they work. And um, so there's lots of questions that come out about things like corporate power, um, the, the power that corporations have in the marketplace as well as in politics. But the, the, the biggest question, the overarching question is what's called the labor question, the question of what rights or powers uh, will laborers have in this new industrial society. This is a picture here of part of Andrew Carnegie's steelworks. Um, so the outcome of this is one of the outcomes of this anyways, of this period of industrialization and some of its problems, is great tensions around labor and class. To the extent that some of these uh, tensions lead to violence, to outbreaks of violence that in fact look a lot like literally like war. This is a series of panels that might on first blush look like some panels from the Civil War or something like that, but this is actually a strike at the Homestead Works, which was one of Andrew Carnegie's steelworks in Pennsylvania, where in the, after a strike um, and the attempt by employers to bring in non-union laborers, there was conflict, there was violence, uh, the state militia was sent in, as well as the company hiring Pinkertons, which were private, a private police force, uh, to try to um, uh, get over you know, the, the obstacles presented by striking workers. Um, this is another picture here that gives you some sense of this. Uh, this is from Colorado in the early 1900s in the gold mines and gold fields of Colorado, which had shifted away from the sort of old uh, you know, gold panner going out there on his own to a much more industrial scale of mining. Uh, the strikers, uh, the uh, workers there also went on strike, again leading to ultimately to a lot of violence, the sending in of the state militia, and you can see them pictured here with one of the new technologies, relatively new technologies of this period, which is the machine gun. Um, so a lot of this looks, uh, is very, very violent and looks really like warfare, literal class warfare. And we often have, I think, a, a sense of the United States where, that um, it's a place where class tensions, class conflict are not as prominent as in other places. But in this period, this period of the late 19th, early 20th century, was a period there was intense violence uh, around class and questions of labor. Um, and the United States had some of the, the most violent uh, labor conflicts in the world in this period. Now there's lots of different questions among laborers about what, how they're going to respond to this new era of industrialization and corporate power and so on. Um, some uh, unions, like the American Federation of Labor, uh, want to push for things like higher wages for workers, safer conditions, shorter hours. But beyond that, they don't have a longer range plan or a broader goal. They're not trying to change society more fundamentally. Um, but other uh, laborers and labor organizations are. They may also be pushing for things like better wages, better working conditions, but they're also pushing for ultimately a fundamentally different system, a change to the system 
than industrial capitalism as it exists. And for many of them, they see the world something like this, where you have workers at the bottom who are producing the wealth. They're the ones doing the work. Uh, but it's the people above them, ultimately the capitalists, who are most benefiting from that. And there are other people in between there, like the military, as you can see, uh, who are keeping the workers in their place. Right? And the organization that is most associated with these ideas in this period are the industrial workers of the world, a radical union that wanted to overthrow capitalism. Um, and it was the, the major sort of competitor to the American Federation of Labor, a, an organization that had a more narrow ideas about what it wanted for workers. So the industrial workers of the world, uh, this is their logo here. And you can see on the right there uh, one of their cartoons or comics that they created uh, that gives you a sense of <clears throat> what they're interested in. The path on the left is says a fair day's uh, pay for a fair day's work. That was the slogan of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. Um, the industrial workers of the world path is on the right, the abolition of the wage system. And the basic idea behind the IWW's ideas was that uh, if they could organize all workers, they could, they could throw off the ruling capitalist class and workers would just manage the industries themselves and get all the wealth that they saw as being created for the workers and do away with this wage labor system. Yeah. So in the picture of the pyramid of capitalist system, what does it mean for we eat for you? Like what is that representing? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I mean, that is, uh, I'm not really sure what that, that part of that means. Um, those are those look like middle or upper class people. I mean, I guess they're they are they are people that are benefiting off of the backs of laborers, but I'm not sure why they're they're it's phrase is we eat for you. That's a good question. <clears throat> so the industrial workers of the world um, are interested in in organizing workers, um, all workers. All right. So one of the things that's different about them in addition to their more radical take on society than the American Federation of Labor is that they're an industrial union. And what that means in this period is that you, an industrial union was, uh, was uh, contrasted with the craft unions of the American Federation of Labor. Craft unions would be unions made up of skilled workers in an industry. Industrial unions would be a union of every worker in that industry skilled and unskilled. There probably weren't really any workers that were literally unskilled, but there were different levels of skill, right? Um, and so this is just part of a very detailed chart that the, the IWW created, but it just shows you, you know, here under forest service and lumbering, all of these say all workers in woods and the forest. They divided them up by different industries, um, and that's how they would organize this broader union. Uh, but all of the workers in those industries would be would be part of that union. And in addition to trying to organize all workers within a union, skilled and unskilled, the IWW also wanted to organize all workers regardless of things like gender or race or ethnicity. That again was not something that was true of the American Federation of Labor, who excluded most African Americans, excluded a lot of women, excluded Chinese and other workers in addition to excluding unskilled workers. So the IWW is interested in um, organizing all workers. Doesn't matter what race, you're, what race or whether you're a man or a woman, 
And finally, they wanted to organize workers on a global scale. They're the industrial workers of the world. And ultimately, they want to organize labor, laborers across national lines as well. <clears throat> now, you can see here uh, the industrial worker. This is a, a map of actions, IWW actions, from 1905 to 1920, which was kind of the, the golden age of the IWW. <clears throat> and they're working all across the United States. Um, but uh, there's, there, they take a lot of actions in the Northeast and some of the, the manufacturing industries there, but a lot of their work is located in the West. And in many ways, they come out of the West. The IWW is founded in 1905 in Chicago, but the, the main predecessor organization to them is, is a union called the Western Federation of Miners. The Western Federation of Miners um, the impetus for it comes out of a, another one of these really bloody labor battles that happens in the mining industry in Idaho. Um, and as a result of that, miners in the West decide that they need to organize on a much broader scale to build an organization, an umbrella organization for all miners in the West. And they meet in Butte, Montana in 1893 to create the Western Federation of Miners. And then the Western, many members of the Western Federation of Miners are the key people who push for the organization of an even bigger umbrella organization, the Industrial Workers of the World, in Chicago in 1905. Uh, so they come out of the West, but part of the reason that they have a lot of actions in the West, and you see a lot in the Pacific Northwest in particular, is that a lot of the people that they want to organize, and a lot of the people that are not being organized by other unions, are located in the West. They are workers like workers that work in mines, workers that work in the agricultural industry and the lumber industry. These workers, many of these workers are these quote unquote unskilled workers that are not being organized by the American Federation of Labor. A lot of them work in jobs where they're very itinerant. They move around a lot to different, you know, there's, there's jobs that are essentially seasonal or they're boom and bust style jobs. So they emerge in one area and then that, that um, you know, that attempt to exploit resources in an area um, ends and they move somewhere else. Those types of workers are hard to organize and many unions don't bother trying to organize them, but the industrial workers of the world want to organize them. So that's why there's, they're, they're, uh, you see a lot of their actions in the West. Yeah. What does the darker red indicate? I think that those are areas where there were, there were multiple actions. They're, they're, the actions include things like strikes, campaigns, things like that. So I think that those are areas where there were more than one. Yeah. This, by the way, is a, uh, there's a, University of Washington has a whole interactive website, digital history of the industrial workers of the world, where you can look at things like these interactive maps, look at graphs, all sorts of things about the history of this, uh, of the IWW over time. So it's a really cool resource to check out. All right, so now we're gonna talk about um, uh, Montana here and how this relates to Montana. So <clears throat> Montana is one of the, you know, it's uh, one of these parts of the West where the industrial workers of the world are very active. And as I mentioned before, Butte in Montana was where the Western Federation of Miners was created, one of these key predecessors to the IWW. Montana's industry in the late 19th century and early 20th century is dominated by the copper industry. The copper mines in Butte have emerged in the late 19th century as some of the most uh, profitable 
um, and, uh, and rich mines in terms of copper in the world. And by this period, uh, no other place on Earth is producing more copper than the, the copper mines in Butte. Uh, but that mining, again, has to be done on an industrial scale. Uh, copper is mixed in with all sorts of other materials. It's not as, you know, on a well, per weight basis as valuable as something like gold or silver. So you've got to mine a lot of it to be able to make a profit. And you have to be able to smelt that down. And ideally, not smelt it a long ways away from Butte. Butte's kind of a ways from, you know, a lot of other uh, industrial centers, a lot of places that might make use of copper. But you don't want to ship copper ore all the way across the country. You want to be able to smelt it down and purify it first. So the copper mines uh, in Butte are here. You know, Butte is a big urban industrial center in, in the West in this period. Um, and just outside of Butte, uh, whoops, is Anaconda, a town that was actually just created entirely to be a smelting center for the copper ore coming out of Butte. And there's various different owners of copper mines and copper smelters in the Butte and Anaconda area. Uh, but the biggest of these that emerges in the early, 19, early 1900s is the Anaconda Copper Company, one of the very biggest corporations in the world at the time. So these are huge industrial uh, processes, these mines that are being built um, and the smelters being built to, 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 mine, to smelt that copper. But they need, among other things, they need one, there's a, a, one really crucial material to make these things operate, and that is wood. You need a lot of wood to build all these mines in Butte. These mines are supported, the mining tunnels, uh, the shafts are supported by huge timbers. And there's the, the mines in Butte go thousands of feet deep. There's thousands of miles of mines built in Butte. So you can just, this is a one uh, uh, miner working on one of these uh, wooden uh, timbers in a shaft, but you can just imagine thousands of miles of that takes a lot of wood, right? So too do the smelters. Um, the smelters use coal sometimes, but they also use a lot of wood. And this picture on the left here might look at first glance like a field of hay bales maybe, but if you look a little bit closer in the foreground here, you see that's wood stacked up. This is a forest that's been liquidated and chopped down and stacked into piles for cordwood to feed uh, the smelter at Anaconda. So they need a tremendous amount of wood for this, this major mon uh, industry in Montana. And where is that going to come from? It's going to come from western Montana. That's where all these huge forests are located. And right in the middle of all those huge forests in western Montana is Missoula, which is also one of the places where a lot of uh, travel routes come together, rivers come together. So it's a natural place for building a really big mill. There's all sorts of mills, lumber mills, that are built in Montana in the west in this period. But the biggest of these is the big Blackfoot Milling Company built in Bonner, just outside of Missoula. Initially owned independently and eventually bought in the early 1900s by the Anaconda Copper Company because wood is so important to their industry. <clears throat> so the workers in this industry, in the lumber, this lumber industry in western Montana, are the workers that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and other members of the industrial workers of the world are going to come and organize. And you're organizing them because, for a few reasons. One is that the work there is very hard, it's very dangerous, the conditions under which workers work are very poor in a lot of ways. And just to give you a sense of what this work looks like, 
you go out into the woods, you gotta get all this wood to a mill, like the big Blackfoot mill, right? So you go way out into the woods, you're chopping down these trees with axes or hand saws. It's very difficult work. Then you have to skid those logs down and load them on a big wagon or sled that's drawn by horses. You can see these are all pictures from uh, the Blackfoot drainage, which is where most of that wood came from that went to the Blackfoot, big Blackfoot milling company. Um, so up around areas like Sealy Lake and Clearwater Junction. So they would be skidded down there, and then you would take those to the riverside and wait. Often this was done in winter, because it's easier to move logs that way. Then you would wait for the spring runoff, when the rivers are at their highest level, and they're flowing really high and really fast and really cold also. And then you push those logs into the river and float them down, and if you're a worker working on that, you float down the river with them. You go down the river with them, and that's, those are uh, on the top right there, uh, workers who are shepherding those logs into the river and then are going to follow them down. So you can imagine going down the river with those, those kinds of logs, those huge logs like that. And you might face things like massive log jams. This is a log jam on the Blackfoot River. Just imagine being in the middle of something like that and having to deal with it with hand tools or maybe dynamite, which was one of the ways that they used to try to break up some of these log jams. Incredibly hard and incredibly dangerous work. And ultimately, that would, those would make it down. This is the Blackfoot River here, um, coming out of these mountains and flowing down to the big Blackfoot mill there, where they would, uh, those logs would then be uh, milled up, cut into smaller pieces. And mill work was hard itself as well, and dangerous. Um, but mill workers were people who could, you know, they'd go to work at the mill, and they probably lived somewhere around there, Bonner or Milltown or Missoula, and they could go to the mill for their work every day and go back to their homes at night. But that wasn't true of the people that worked out in the forest, the people that cut down logs or got them those logs you know, to the river. They lived in lumber camps, and those lumber camps were very difficult places to live. Not only is this work hard and the pay very little, um, but the conditions under which they live are pretty horrible. Uh, they often live in places, uh, tents or shacks that are very poorly heated. They sleep on basically wooden boards with maybe a thin layer of hay, and that hay would be infested with lice and bed bugs and other types of vermin. They'd be fed probably not enough food, and much of their food that was fed to them was just rotten food. Um, so you can see this is a strike bulletin. This is from a little bit later. This is from the 19-teens, but from western Montana. Um, and you can see it says, uh, you know, they're demanding things like an eight-hour day and higher pay, but also things like blankets, wholesome food, better sanitary conditions, and also no discrimination against strikers. And the final phrase on there, an injury to one is an injury to all, was the, one of the key um, mottos of the industrial workers of the world. So we know that this, I don't know exactly when this is from, but we know that whenever this strike happened, um, in members of the IWW were involved in that in some way. So the IWW organizers, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and others that come to Missoula are coming uh, you know, to organize these, these lumberers that are working <coughs> in these very dangerous jobs and living under very poor conditions. And this is roughly what Missoula would have looked like around that time from where we are right now at the University of Montana. 
And often in the, the distance down there, you can see a bridge over the Clark Fork. That's the Higgins Street Bridge, or that's what it was then, Bear Tracks Bridge now. And then just across the river there, uh, downtown Missoula. And that's where they are going to go. Here's a map of downtown Missoula from that time period. Uh, you can see Higgins going north and south, Front Street going east and west, and at the top, Main Street going east and west. And at the very bottom is the Higgins Street Bridge down there. <clears throat> now, why would they go uh, to, uh, to Missoula, you know, a downtown Missoula, to try to organize lumber workers? That's not where lumber workers are doing their work, right? Um, to give you a sense of this, this is that map again. Lumber workers would be going while the, you know, they may be uh, bringing wood to a mill located in Missoula or some of the other towns around there. They'd be working all over uh, parts of western Montana. <clears throat> but it's very difficult for labor organizers to go out to all these lumber camps, right? They don't know where they are. Yeah. They come and go. Um, so, and for the same reason, lumber workers uh, don't always know where they are. So they often come into a town like Missoula to look for lumber work. So that's where um, these labor organizers are going to organize these lumber workers. But there's another reason as well. Um, let me come, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the way that, as I said, lumber workers don't, they're, they're, you know, again, this is one of those jobs where they move around seasonally. They may work in some area and then they, all the logs are cut down there. So they have to move somewhere else, maybe to a totally different state to try to look for work. So they would go to a town like Missoula or Spokane or one of these other cities located in the Pacific Northwest. And <coughs> there was, a, the, the system as it worked was there was, there were employment agencies in those towns. And those employment agencies would um, know where the work was. So as a worker, you would go to one of these employment agencies. And the way it worked is you'd pay them some money. And they would give you a letter. And then you could go to wherever that lumber camp was and give the, the foreman of that camp your letter that says you paid the employment agency. And you would go to work there. So that's how it's supposed to work in theory. In practice, the way that it worked in many ways was much more exploitative. Um, so uh, there's another level in which these lumber workers are being exploited through this employment agency system. So this is a comic from the Industrial Workers of the World, one of their publications. And it shows, um, it shows, whoops. It shows uh, lumber workers coming here and down in the, in the, the front bottom part of that, paying the employment agency guy some money. He gets a letter. They also often had to pay somebody then to transport them out to these lumber camps. So they pay a little bit more money. And they go out to these lumber camps and they go, they're put to work. But they might only work for a few days or a few weeks and then they might get fired or the, the foreman might say, we don't have any more work, move on out of here. And so they would have to go back and then go through this whole process again, find another employment agency, pay them again, go out to another spot. Why did it work this way? Because the employment agencies have an incentive to try to get more people through their doors, right? It doesn't benefit them if these lumber workers are going out and staying in these camps for months or years on end. They want more people coming through the employment agency. So what they would do is pay the foreman of one of these lumber camps to fire or let go some of these workers after a short period of time so that they'd have to come back and pay the employment agency again. So these workers would pay a lot of money up front, go out, only be able to work for a little bit, 
and then have to do this process again. In some cases, <coughs> they didn't have money to pay up front. So they would make a, an agreement with the employment agency that the employment agency would garnish their wages for a little bit to pay for that, that first you know, payment. So they would go out to these jobs, work for a couple weeks, their wages would be garnished and played, paid to the employment agency, and then they might be let go and not make any money at all. So there was a lot of exploitation here, and this is the key thing that the industrial workers of the world were organizing around in this period in the Pacific Northwest. They started a campaign in 1908, the year before they go to Missoula here, called the Don't Buy Jobs Campaign. Um, against what they called the, the employment sharks, um, these, these employment agencies that they saw as being uh, e exploiting these workers. So that's what they're there in Missoula to do, and they're in downtown Missoula because that's where the employment agencies are located. They want to protest outside of those employment agencies, and they want to connect with workers who are in downtown Missoula who may be going to those agencies and help organize them for part of this Don't Buy Jobs campaign. So they go to Missoula, they set up their base of operations um, right up there on Main Street in the basement of the Harnoy Theater, uh, an opera house. So it's some, a nice uh, uh, spot for their headquarters. Um, and then from there, they can, they can speak out on the street downtown. So just to give you, orient you a little bit here, uh, they, they go downtown. One of the key spots that they start speaking and organizing is where that circle is there. That's on the corner of Higgins and Front Street. And this just uh, uh, magnifies some of these buildings here. Right on that corner is the Florence Hotel. Just across the street from that to the south is the Hammond Building. Um, across the street to the east is the Missoula Mercantile. And then uh, uh, to the southeast across the street <coughs> is the, the first national bank. So this is what that would look like in this period. And that little circle there is that corner uh, of Higgins and Front Street where they did a lot of their speaking. That's the Florence building right behind that there, the Hammond building to the south, and across the street, the Missoula Mercantile. You can see the MMC there, and the first national bank in the foreground on the right there. So this is, a, this is right around that time. This is what Missoula would have looked like then. Uh, there would have been dirt roads, the roads weren't paved yet, there weren't streetcars yet, there was probably some early automobiles, as you can see here, a lot of horses still. The sidewalks would have been paved, or, or maybe wooden sidewalks. Um, and it's a, it's a, a town that is, is growing quite rapidly, uh, but still pretty small. A lot of things are in very close proximity there. So these are the three IWW laborers that go to Missoula in, 19, in the fall of 1909. On the left is Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who I showed you a picture of. Um, and she's referred to as Joan here because although she was only 19 years old, she had already made a name for herself uh, as a fierce uh, uh, proponent of workers' rights. So they often re referred to her as the Joan of Arc. Uh, so this fierce uh, woman warrior, and she was in high demand as a speaker on labor rights. Uh, to the right of her is, um, is uh, Jack uh, Jones, who was her husband. He, was a, he had been a miner and then had become an organizer for the industrial workers of the world. And on the right there is Frank Little, another guy who started out as a miner and then became a professional organizer for the IWW. Frank Little uh, will become probably the most famous member of the industrial workers of the world. 
And I'll tell you more about why that is uh, at the end of this presentation. So these, uh, these, these guys uh, set up their base of operations in the Hanoi Theater. Um, they go out and start streaking, uh, speaking on street corners. They stand on a soapbox, literally, or a barrel, and begin often as the IWW would with their speeches with fellow workers and try to discuss with workers that are around there on the street um, ex their exploitation, uh, convince them to unionize, and particularly unionize with the IWW, and so on. <clears throat> And these workers, I mean, the IWW, I mean, a lot of their organizing was done on the street. That's where a lot of the, the laborers that they wanted to organize ended up being. So, so they're very oriented towards the street. So they do this for a few days, but then the employment agencies are right here. There's one that's right in that Florence Hotel in the basement of that, or in the, on the first floor of that, right where they are, they are speaking, and others that are right around there in earshot of them. There are other businesses downtown that also don't like these radical labor organizers out there speaking, and they put pressure on the city, and ultimately the police come uh, and arrest them, arrest Jones and Little, the two men of these three organizers. So uh, Jones and Little are arrested, and they go to court the next day. Uh, and they argue before the judge that they're not doing anything wrong. They're just out there speaking uh, they're arrested under an ordinance that about basically a disturbing the peace ordinance. But they argue, look, there are other people out there on the street making as much noise or more than we are. For example, the Salvation Army. This was another organization, very different from the IWW, that was also out there on the street a lot, uh, trying to connect with poor people or, or uh, workers. Uh, the Salvation Army was out there trying to convert people to Christianity or convert them to you know, their version of Christianity or otherwise um, uh, try to urge them to become more moral people um, and more Christian people. And the Salvation Army made use of things like music and they sh were shouting at other uh, at people out there as well. And that's happening in downtown Missoula at the same time. So they say, why aren't you, why aren't you arresting the Salvation Army people? The judge, who's the, his name is Judge Small, um, says this is irrelevant. That's irrelevant, um, and he convicts them, uh, or, um, orders them to go to jail for 15 days, and orders them to pay a fine. But he says, "I'll suspend all that if you agree not to speak anymore, because this is the thing they really want. It's not so much they want to punish them; they just want them to stop speaking out, right?" But Jones and Frank Little refuse to do that, so they're sent to jail. And this is an IWW cartoon that's um, uh, illustrating some of these things here, right? They're talking about how they're on, a, they're on a soapbox here, they're being arrested by the police, even though the Salvation Army is out there too, they're not being arrested. And there are a few other things about this uh, cartoon as well. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, in the top right there, you can see a police officer being paid off. Uh, and next to him is the red light district. And this, this area of Missoula where they're at, I'll just go back to this map here for a second. Um, this area right over here, back here on West Front Street, you can't see it uh, well enough uh, from where you are, but there's a whole bunch of little buildings here. And what those buildings say on them is FB. This is a Sanborn fire insurance map, so we know what uh, that stands for. It stands for female boarding house, which is a euphemism for houses of prostitution. So that was the red light district right there, just a block away from where they're meeting. 
And basically they're saying in this cartoon, there's you know, all this other crime that's going on. Um, and the police are being paid off to not do anything about that. In other words, the police are not there to enforce the laws, really, enforce morality. They are there um, you know, to interfere with labor organizing. Um, and the bottom right there, you can see the jail. This was the, the, where they were sent to jail. In Missoula, the jail was in the basement of a building, and the floor above that was where the city stables were. This is a time when there was still a lot of horses being used. The city had a lot of horses, and it kept them in that area right above there. So there were horses right above them and a floor between them that was not, not very airtight. So there's a lot of horse urine and defecation that's going down right onto them. Um, the IWW is also, uh, I put this uh, songbook up here. They were famous for the use of songs. Uh, they used songs as an organizing tool and developed this book called The Little Red Songbook uh, to fan the flames of discontent, as, they, as it says on the cover there. Um, and one of their most famous songs is, uh, that comes out just a few years after this um, is called uh, The Preacher and the Slave, or it's also called The Long-Haired, Red, uh, Long-Haired Preacher. And um, the key line in it is, work and pray, live on hay, you'll get pie in the sky when you die. Uh, and it's a parody of the salvation workers, who they refer to in this song as the starvation workers. But they're critiquing the idea of the salvation workers, uh, salvation army, as offering workers, industrial workers who are often quite poor, telling them, you know, don't worry about things like trying to get more in this, on this earth, the material earth. Just be a good Christian, and you'll get your reward afterwards. And the industrial workers of the world are saying, no, you should write, fight for, you know, what is rightfully yours now. Um, and the, the other, as I said, that one of the other titles of that song is Long-Haired Preacher. And one of the reasons that it's called that is that um, workers that worked in industries like the lumber industry, as I mentioned, where they had to live in places where there was a lot of things like lice and bed bugs, uh, would cut their hair really short as, so it would be less amenable to getting infested by those things. And it was people who didn't have to work in those sorts of conditions who had the luxury of having longer hair. So it's also a sort of critique of, of these preachers in that way as well. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> the jailing of Jones and Little leaves uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn basically on her own as the, org- the main organizer for the IWW on the outside, right? She, as I said, is quite young. She's 19. She's actually pregnant at this time, although it's not really clear if she knows that or not. Um, but uh, She's young, but nevertheless a very, a very good leader. And at, while they're in jail, she gathers other workers locally to take their place uh, speaking on the street. So other people, local people, lumber workers, uh, uh, agree to, to speak out as well. One of them is a guy named George Appleby. He's a young uh, lumber worker. And uh, Flynn writes later um, in her memoirs about this that he was uh, really scared of public speaking. This was a guy who worked in a really, really dangerous job, uh, but he was, probably wasn't scared of a lot of things, but he was really scared of public speaking. But nevertheless, was willing to get up on a soapbox and speak. <clears throat> and he gets up on one of these boxes and says, starts to speak, says, fellow workers. And that's as far as he gets before he's pulled, yanked off there by the police and arrested and put in jail. 
There's another guy watching this, uh, a guy named uh, J.L. Tucker uh, from an office window nearby. Um, and he's actually an engineer for the Forest Service. So he's, he's not really a, a laborer. He's a more of the professional class of people. But he's watching this <coughs> and decides to run down. He runs, he runs down uh, from his office, goes across the street, <coughs> and he jumps up on one of these soapboxes as well and starts speaking. Says, ladies and gentlemen, I believe in free speech. And then he's yanked off the, the, the soapbox as well and arrested. So at the same time that uh, Flynn is, is getting some local people to start speaking, she also sends out a telegram to the Industrial Worker, which is the main publication of the IWW. It's published out of Spokane nearby. And she sends this tel telegram, which this is part of it right here, uh, requesting people to come to Missoula. She asks every freeborn American uh, to come to Missoula and help out. She says it may be necessary to fill the Missoula jails. And it appears that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn had this tactic in mind. A few days before this, she had written in The Industrial Worker that we intend to fill the jails of this town to overflowing if they start arresting. Um, <clears throat> and this is interesting because this is a, sort of a new tactic in civil disobedience, this idea of, of intentionally getting arrested and using those arrests, overwhelming a city with arrests uh, in order to try to pressure them to change their ways. So she sends out this thing, a very sort of, um, you know, really trying to prod people from other areas to come to Missoula. Are you game? Are you afraid? Do you love the, the police? Have you been robbed, skinned, or grafted? If so, go to Missoula. So that gets published in the, in the Industrial Worker. In the meantime, uh, these, these four guys that have now been arrested, Jones and Little and these two other people, this lumber worker and forest engineer, are released from jail. Um, the, as I said, it, the city doesn't really want to keep them in jail. Um, it just wants them to stop speaking. So it releases them, um, but they don't, they don't leave. They go right back out and start speaking on the street, <coughs> and as do others. And so there are more arrests, more people sent to jail, um, and they start because it's now clear that they're not going to get any chance to say very much and they want to make a point. They start just getting up on these soapboxes and just reading the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. Um, and, and this is another uh, cartoon from the uh, Industrial Workers of the World. Um, and what it's showing is this judge, again, who's, who says it is against the Constitution to talk on the streets. Do you understand? So making a point about free speech. Um, and then behind him is, uh, is uh, one of these uh, employment agency people who, who is giving him money. So the IWW insinuating that these, this judge is being, uh, being paid off. <clears throat> so by this point, these speeches and arrests are starting to create a real spectacle in the town. Hundreds of people start to gather every day and then thousands of people start to gather. The mayor doesn't like this. He doesn't want this big spectacle. Um, so he orders the fire chief to go down there, bring the fire hose and wagon, and tell the people that are gathered around there to disperse, to get out of there, or he's going to uh, you know, use these, these, uh, these, um, this fire hose on them. But they refuse to disperse. And so the, the fire chief blasts uh, all these people that have gathered around uh, with water. And this is, by now, this is October 1st, right? So they've, these guys have come here in late September. They've been here for a little bit. Now it's October 1st. It's 
I don't know exactly what the temperature was, but potentially this is the Northern Rockies, not very warm out, and they're blasting them with quite a bit of cold water. <clears throat> there are more arrests that happen. Uh, these people keep speaking and getting arrested, uh, but also reinforcements start to arrive. Uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's call for people to come to Missoula starts paying off, and people start coming in droves from Spokane and Seattle and Portland. Um, there are more arrests. The jails start filling up more and more. Uh, Flynn gives a speech to hundreds of people in front of the Hanoi Theater. And eventually, she is arrested, too. Uh, the police were probably trying to put off arresting a woman because it has bad optics, but eventually they arrest her. Um, she's defiant. She says, the IWW uh, will not be suppressed, even if 10 men are jailed every day. By this point, public opinion is really starting to turn against the city and the police. Thousands of people continue to come and gather despite the use of fire hose on one of these days. The mayor decides because of the backlash against that that he's not going to do that anymore. And a lot of people in town are starting to develop a lot of sympathy uh, for these uh, I IWW organizers and the workers. They're giving them bread, giving them newspapers. Um, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is released from jail pretty quickly. But then another woman who has gone there, Edith Frenette, is, is arrested. And when the police arrest her and start taking her off to jail, 500 people trail behind the police. One person throws a rock. It very nearly breaks out into a riot. And newspapers from far away start to carry stories about this. Um, in Illinois, there's a story that mentions that 2,000 people in Missoula stormed the jail demanding the release of prisoners. There's a lot of coverage of the arrests and treatment of, of these arrestees by the police, mentioning these awful jail conditions that they're living under, beatings that are suffered by them, um, by, by these people that are arrested. Jack Jones, one of these, uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's husband, one of these key organizers, is in one case beaten uh, to a bloody unconscious pulp by the sheriff who uses a large brass key to do that. And there are lots of other uh, violence visited upon uh, these organizers. Um, and this is, a, this is from the Montana News, which is a, a socialist newspaper out of Helena, and perhaps not surprisingly very sympathetic to the IWW, but other um, uh, newspapers also s express, uh, start to express sympathy as well. Now, despite all these arrests and all this brutality, the, the uh, IWW um, continues its practice, and it starts to pay off this filling up of the jails. By the end of the first week in October, 70 people are imprisoned in the jails, and this is not a big city, right? The city has to rent out a new jail beneath the Missoula Hotel. If you've ever been to the Mo Club downtown, that's the Missoula Hotel building. So right underneath there was where they <coughs> created a, a new jail to start putting a lot of these people that were arrested. They have to build, uh, have a, rent out a new courtroom to process all these people that are being arrested. And it's getting very expensive for the city. The, the people that are arrested um, off, uh, try to deliberately get arrested right before dinner so that the city has to feed them. And then they refuse to leave before they are fed breakfast in the morning. So the city is paying for a lot of uh, food for these people. Um, one man who's, arrest, uh, who's uh, arrested and then released um, to go see his wife comes back and begs to be let back in to the, to the delight of many uh, Missoulians around there. So people are, these, these people that are being arrested are really trying to put pressure on the city. 
And looming on the horizon for the city uh, is the city's big annual Apple show. Apples are uh, a big deal in Missoula, really big deal. Um, they, uh, Macintosh apples, which are produced down in the Bitterroot Valley, south of Missoula, are nationally known at this time. They're, they're famous, and Missoula has a big apple festival every year. Um, and so the city is facing this, what appears to be an interminable struggle. There's keeps being more and more people coming to Missoula, willing to take part in this free speech fight. They're paying a lot for these people that are, that are being imprisoned, and now they're facing the disruption of a major city event. And they cave in. They decide that they're not going to do this anymore. The city council orders the, the city police to stop arresting these workers uh, and organizers who are out on the street speaking. And so the, the, the IWW wins their first free speech fight. Um, and it's the, really the first of its kind in the 20th century, this battle over free speech. So they have this free speech win. Now that doesn't mean they, they win the, the broader labor battle. Again, they came here originally to try to organize workers against their exploitation by these um, employment agencies and lumber uh, owners. Um, and that battle continues. Um, this is a, a, a sign from a strike in the lumber industry in 1917 in Montana. There was a big strike across a lot of the lumber industry in the Pacific Northwest in 1917, as well as in Butte, in the mines in Butte. Um, but this is uh, out in Milltown, um, just near Bonner there. It says, only real humans invited, so scabs and gunmen stay away. So they have a long way to go in their, in their labor organizing battles. <clears throat> but they also continue uh, their free speech fights. Uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Frank Little go to Spokane right after uh, this, winning this, this battle in Missoula. Um, and basically the same thing happens all over again in Spokane, except on a larger scale. But Spokane's bigger, the fight is drawn out longer, it's bloodier. Um, <clears throat> police uh, uh, stuff Frank Little uh, and other uh, organizers into tiny cells, and then they blast steam heat into those cells. They call it the sweat box, and these men uh, nearly suffocate, a lot of them pass out. And then when they're done with that, they transfer them to freezing cold cells. And in November, this is November now, um, so many of them verge on hypothermia. And this goes on for weeks, and the prisoners are, uh, you know, they're given basically no food, they're brutally beaten, um, and 16 of them end up seriously hospitalized, and three of them die. Um, <clears throat> and then after Spokane, there's numerous other free speech fights that, uh, that emerge in other cities across the West. This is one from San Diego in 1912. You can see again the use of uh, fire hoses on the crowd. And um, uh, a, another comic here um, questioning the, the relationship uh, between American ideals about free speech and what is actually happening. And many other cities have these as well. Fresno, and others. In all, there are 30 free speech fights uh, in the American West in this period, um, led by the industrial workers of the world. All right, so um, I want to just talk a little bit about what happens to some of these key leaders of the free speech fight in Missoula afterwards, because they're all involved subsequently in various other things related to free speech. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, as I mentioned, goes on to uh, uh, be involved in other free speech fights like Spokane. 
Um, but she also uh, uh, becomes a founding member of the American Civil Liberties Union. During, these, during and after these free speech fights in the 19-teens, uh, there's a lot of emerging concern about free speech, and that is only becomes more prominent during World War I, uh, when there are various restrictions placed on free speech. And the outcome of that is an attempt to, to build an organization that can fight for free speech rights as well as other civil rights, um, and that's the American Civil Liberties Union, which is founded in 1920, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, again, is a founding member of that. And she continues through the rest of her life basically to, to devote it to radical politics, socialism, um, and free speech. Uh, and this is an, uh, <coughs> a pamphlet that she wrote called The Plot, Plot to Gag America. <coughs> it's about the Smith Act um, and some related acts. The Smith Act was an act from 1940 which made it illegal uh, to advocate overthrowing the American government or to be uh, part of an organization that advocated something like that. Uh, so many socialist and communist organizations from this period were made illegal through this act. And Flynn organizes against that, writes this pamphlet against that, although she's then ultimately arrested under that very act and imprisoned. Jack Jones, uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's wife, uh, goes on in a different direction, but also uh, one related to free speech. They split up at some point. I don't really know what, what happens there. But Jack Jones moves to Chicago and founds this club called the Dill Pickle Club. And you can see the entrance to it here in, a, in, a, uh, in an alleyway. It says, step high, stoop low, leave your dignity outside, a big danger sign above it. And uh, basically, this is a, uh, a club that's designed to, it mixes radical politics, controversial art, and an open discussion of things like human sexuality. Uh, this was something that was very rare for its time, um, but the idea was, was to create a place where you could have a free discussion of a lot of these ideas that were seen as controversial or even you know, borderline illegal to even discuss, uh, among other things, discussions about things like homosexuality. Frank Little's story also is intertwined with the story of free speech in America. Um, right across, if you went across the river from where they were organizing in downtown Missoula um, is the Milwaukee Railroad. And if you followed that Milwaukee Railroad from Missoula east out to Butte on August 1st, 1917, you would eventually come across a railroad trestle and hanging from that trestle would be a person and that was Frank Little. Uh, Frank Little, as I mentioned before, there was a big strike in the mines in Butte in 1917, in the midst of World War I. It was a very, very tense situation. I mean, strikes are always tense situations, but in the middle of the war, it was even more intense. Copper was one of the key military materials for use in the war. There was a lot of money to be made off its production during the war, so there was a lot at stake. But many miners were very um, uh, unhappy with their position in Butte. Their union had not been recognized by the Anaconda Copper Company. Um, there had been a huge, massive um, uh, mining accident in one, of the, in one of the mines there, the worst hard rock uh, mining accident in the history of the United States. Um, and that uh, um, catalyzed a new movement for labor there. And the industrial workers of the world sent Frank Little, one of their top organizers, to Butte to be part of that organizing effort to try to 
sway some of the, these workers and, and forming unions to, to be connected with the, the IWW. And he was there for about two weeks uh, before one night, uh, six masked men broke into the place that he was living, dragged him out of there, dragged him through Butte behind a, an automobile until his kneecaps were uh, drug off, and then brought him to this railroad trestle where they hanged him and, and he was killed. <coughs> uh, nobody was ever um, convicted, let alone indicted, for, for this murder, although many people suspected that the Anaconda Copper Company had been involved. And <coughs> the night before, uh, just well, that evening before, uh, he was murdered, uh, the, one of the key people in the Anaconda Copper Company had um, called up the district attorney for the state of Montana, a guy named Burton Wheeler, to the sixth floor of the Hennessy Building. That was the headquarters of the Anaconda Copper Company in Butte. Called him up there and said, you have to arrest this guy, Frank Little. He is you know, speaking out against, you know, he's, he's a radical trying to organize these laborers. He's speaking out against the war. Um, and you need to arrest this guy. And Burton Wheeler said, I, there's no law to arrest him under. What, what law would I arrest him? So he refuses to do that. And it was just literally hours later that Frank Little was um, dragged from his house and murdered. Um, <clears throat> and in the aftermath of that, in the aftermath of Frank Little's murder, um, allies of the Anaconda Copper Company pushed for the creation of a state law that would make the, that sort of speech illegal. And in 1918, Montana passed a Sedition Act, which made it illegal to basically to criticize the government or criticize the war. Um, and then, just not long after that, the national government passed its own Sedition Act, which was basically just a copy of Montana's State Sedition Act. Um, uh, again, making it illegal to, to speak out against the, uh, the war, criticize the war, or the government. Um, one of the worst uh, incursions of, of civil liberties and free speech in American history. And hundreds, thousands of people were arrested under those laws, lives ruined, and that sort of thing. <coughs> so um, so this, these free speech fights, they, they inaugurated a, a series of uh, discussions about free speech in America that had not existed on that level before, uh, both from people who were concerned about speech, about you know what speech could be allowed, and people who were concerned about what limits would be on there would be on free speech. Um, these free speech fights start in 1909 in Missoula, go on into the 19-teens. Then there is the Sedition Act passed, other sorts of things that bring up questions of free speech well into the 1920s when there was a number of Supreme Court cases around these laws that are created. And of course, free speech remains an important topic uh, in American history after that, throughout the 20th century, into the 21st century, right up to today. Um, the second thing that's interesting about the Missoula Free Speech site fight is these, um, these new civil disobedience tactics that are originated. Um, in February 6th of 1961, um, 50 years or so later, members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee send uh, volunteers to Rock Hill, South Carolina, uh, to sit at a segregated lunch counter and get arrested. And the way that a lot of civil rights 
uh, actions had worked before this was when people were arrested, you would bail them out right away, as soon as possible, right? Get them out of jail, get them back on the street so they can do more. Uh, but they, they switch tactics at this point, and they decide they refuse to be bailed out. They decide they're going to stay in jail. And this tactic, which becomes known as jail, no bail, becomes one of the major uh, tactics of the civil rights movement uh, of African Americans in the 1960s. Now, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee doesn't appear to have had any knowledge that this had been used some 50 years before by the IWW. Um, they seem to have sort of reinvented this idea. Uh, but later in the 60s, part of you know, the, the outcome of the social ferment of the 60s was an increasing interest among historians of social movements of the past, including the industrial workers of the world. And um, there were books and articles published in, in the 60s and 70s, increasingly about the IWW, that recovered this history and showed you know, that this, the first time that that sort of tactic had been used, it wasn't called jail mobile at the time, but it was basically that tactic that was originated in Missoula with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn um, had started then in, in Missoula in 1909. So these two key things, the emergence of this, these battles over free speech rights um, and this, this tactic of jail and no bail come out of Missoula, um, Montana in, in 1909. All right, we'll stop there. You guys can ask questions if you have any. Yeah. Um, I know history is a bunch of like what ifs, but mm -hmm. do you think if the Great North Butte mining disaster didn't happen, Frank Little would have survived longer? Maybe. I mean, he, he went there after that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if that wouldn't have happened. I mean, it, it, it may have been that he wouldn't have been sent there. It, that was a, a key catalyzing moment in reinvigorating attempts at unionization in Butte. Um, so it may have been that, you know, that, that maybe that would have just continued on as it had in Butte, which was where the Butte miners basically didn't have a, uh, a recognized union and he wouldn't have been sent there. So it could have changed it in that way, yeah. Yeah. Where was the original jail they were sent to in Missoula? It was right downtown. Let's see if I can. I believe it was, it's right over here. So I can't, my pointer's not working. Up here, uh, that's the fire department. And I think it was underneath that. It was somewhere in that area. So, so close around there, just like a, a block or two away. Yeah, everything was very, very close together down there. Yes. Um, on the like Flynn call uh, that you had up there, it talked about, it said something about Missoula police using sexual violence against female organizers. Mm -hmm. Is that a tactic that was um, pretty like widely used or regular to your knowledge? Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting too. Um, uh, I don't know that, I haven't seen any other, any discussions of uh, you know, police sexually assaulting women as part of this. Um, it certainly could have happened. Uh, it's also possible that, you know, they were using uh, their, the women's, uh, protection of women was a very important thing at this time, even among, you know, especially among middle class people. And so the implication that that might be happening might have been a way to sort of get, get more people on their side. But I don't know if that was, if that actually did happen or not. Yeah, they, they often uh, tried to avoid um, uh, arresting women in the first place because, just pre precisely because there was so much concern around women in this time, but some of them insisted on being arrested. 
Other questions? Yes. Were they, so obviously they won that free speech battle, were they at all successful in, for Missoula, breaking the cycle with the employment companies and all that corruption? Were they at all successful with that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that what happened with that was that um, as uh, transportation and the lumber industry shifted away from some of the more of these itinerant uh, lumber camps, those became less prominent. One of the things that happens is there's more and more railroads built, and it's easier to transport these, these uh, logs in that way. And so that system that I mentioned breaks down a little bit. But I don't think it came out of, of I don't think the unions were successful in breaking that. Yes? Did you know this affect uh, campus life or university life? Because this is like during the beginning or like the early years of campus, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not sure to what extent it, it, it connected with what was going on at the university. I mean, my guess is that there were students who, like the rest of the Missoula community, were going down there and watching what was happening, maybe even participating in it to some extent. Um, you had this Forest Service worker, and there was a lot of connections between, you know, there's a forestry department, and so there, there could have been some connections there, but again, I haven't seen anything specific around that. Any other questions? All right. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash ahtv.